Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't want to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Okay, good afternoon everyone down in the dungeons again in Brussels before we head off to another week in Strasbourg. Just awaiting Mick's return from the COP27 talks in Egypt. He's actually on his way from the airport now, but he's just going to join us presently. So before he does and before we grill him about the real story behind the headlines, of course, Jamie was with him as well. So he's resting and won't be joining us today. But Mick will give us the real beef on that. But while he was away, it was a bit of a, a curious week here in the parliament. We were honoured to have invited over to meet with us a really serious group of activists from Guatemala whom we made contact with in the summer. Now, Guatemalan is a, is a Latin American country that doesn't really get the attention that it deserves and doesn't get enough prominence. Uh, bizarrely, uh, the delegation in the parliament visited there in the last two weeks. They visited Guatemala on Honduras and the justification for the visit was that the high representative had said in these times of the Russian war, we need to link up with more like-minded partners and Guatemala was one of these. We were told and are told on the EU's website that Guatemala is a great friend of the European Union because it voted with us at the UN uh, against uh, Russia's uh, war and for sanctioning Russia. So that seemingly is now the definition of whether you're a friend of the EU. But in any case, we had over with us activists from Codeca. That's an indigenous and peasant movement that's been active in Guatemala for 30 years. And the stories they would tell would put the hair standing on your head because if this is a like-minded partner, well, then Europe should be very, very scared because these indigenous activists who try to protect the land and human rights for ordinary Guatemalans up against the roughly 10 families who control the whole country, uh, these people have paid with their lives uh, with divisions in their communities and so on uh, over the years. So we were delighted to bring over that delegation. We had a number of events in the parliament. We had a really successful cultural night, which uh, many members of the Latin American community attended here in Brussels. And then a whole number of meetings with MEPs and the conclusion of those meetings and what the delegation were looking for was that uh, representatives of the European Parliament would come and involve themselves in a mission and observe the elections in Guatemala next year, which are going to be really important because they have traditionally been riddled with fraud. So we had a great uh, trip with them and really would encourage people to look more into the history of Guatemala, the disappearance, the American coups that took place there, really uh, frightening stuff. But these people are certainly incredibly uh, impressive and poor Mick had to miss that. Yeah. 
with his visit to uh, Egypt. Other than that, there were a whole number of other events as well. I was honoured to be asked by the Portuguese Communist Party to attend a celebration event that they had organised in the Parliament for the 100th anniversary of the birth of José Saramago, who was the only Portuguese award-winning Nobel Prize for Literature, but actually a lifelong member of the Portuguese Communist Party as well. And I was able to tell the story at that about how I was introduced to his work when Pascal Donoghue our Fine Gael Minister for Finance and current President of the Eurogroup gave a loan of Saramago's book Blindness to Mick uh, one summer. And I have to say it was one of the most disturbing and sickening books I ever read, actually. But it is a critique of uh, the system that we live under and I'd strongly recommend people reading it or more importantly, seeing which came uh, after that. So uh, that was a really useful event uh, as well. There was also an event organised by Sinn Féin uh, where they had a report produced on the case for Irish unity and looking at the European Union's role in that situation, which was pretty interesting. Um, clearly now, uh, the discussion around the idea of United Ireland is certainly uh, gathering momentum, with Sinn Féin undoubtedly going to be in power next time around. That will accelerate. And the document is pretty good in terms of outlining the mechanics of how a uh, United Ireland would result in uh, the North rejoining the European Union, a little bit like, um, you know, the reunification of Germany. And I suppose from our point of view, what we need to watch in that is that it's not used as a race to the bottom. And as them, I suppose, uh, trumpeting Ireland as a sort of a 32 county tax haven now rather than 26 county one. But uh, an interesting document and fair play to the lads for launching that. So, uh Certainly while Mick was away, there was a lot of talk about COP, a lot of headline stuff. The things we saw uh, were, I suppose, the things that stood out for me was sort of Lula from Brazil being sort of welcomed like a a rock star uh, was reported. Uh, A lot of the other stuff was fairly mooted in terms of the coverage back here. Uh, And I suppose for a lot of people at home, the questions are, what is the story with COP? Is it... uh, a gathering that's worthwhile? Is it just a, a forum for the countries of the world to pretend to be doing something? Or does it actually result in any engagements? And I suppose what people would be interested in, what were the standout points for you? So I suppose one of the first things might be to give people an idea of the size of the gig, how many people are at it and who they are and what they're all looking for and what they expect to get out of it. Well, um it was all very mad. Um, the, the COP is uh, an incredibly big event. Uh, the whole world attends it. Um, an incredible number of people. Uh, you have people. You have people from every parliament in the world. You have people from every civil service in the world. You have activists from every country in the world. You have NGOs from every country in the world. Uh, I, I actually don't know. I haven't heard a number for COP, but it is crazy the amount of people in the place. And the place itself is uh, massive. And um, I was still getting lost uh, on Thursday evening. Um, I got there after midnight on Monday night. And uh, I I was up uh, before any of you had your breakfast this morning. Uh, about half four this morning. So I had... 
three mad days, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, I was in the place for 10 hours each day, uh, wall-to-wall meetings. Uh, I wasn't part of the official uh, European Parliament delegation, but I I had a... Um, a license from the UN to go. Um, I had UN recognition, which got me in anyway. But obviously, I attended uh, the all the EU meetings, all the EU Parliament meetings uh, with different countries and with the Commission and the Council and whatever. So uh, I was in the room uh, like everybody else. And right, uh, uh, I I didn't miss a whole lot of meetings. Yeah, no doubt, <laughs> many on the official visit uh, probably <laughs> no, did. Uh, uh, um, but anyway, anyway. Um, look at um, the COP is an occasion where um, it's a UN climate conference and uh, it's going on for many years now Uh, this is the 27th and um, um, it's just you ask me is it a worthwhile exercise well first of all not near enough is happening at the COP but yet some things happen. Uh, do I think it's a worthwhile exercise? Um, I'm not so sure the COP itself uh, should have the format that it does have. Uh, it's probably a bit of an extravaganza in some ways, and uh, it's a very costly event. Uh, I'd actually like to see the real decision makers who are the negotiators for each country. Now, I'd, I'd like to see the serious players meet uh, more often. So the idea of all the countries meeting at a COP is a good idea that they're all meeting because multilateralism is much more important and uh, much more progressive idea than bilateralism, right? Getting all the countries on the same page is a must to deal with climate change. And that's a struggle that we're not reaching. Um, so, um, is the COP worthwhile? Um, I I, I, w- I would like to see um, all the countries get together uh, f- about four or five times, four times a year, once a quarter instead of once a year, and, and not bring uh, the bandwagon with them, mm. is what I think, right? Now, and listen, we were part of the bandwagon. But to be honest with you, why did I go? I'm not a decision maker out there, but I went to listen and I went to learn. And that's uh, the role of an MEP. Hmm. We, no MEP has any influence over there. Um, the EU is a party of countries. The US is a country. Uh, Norway are not in the EU. They go as a country. But the, the EU goes a block. Now, anyone that wants to go from any country uh, across Europe can go. And some of them uh, engage in it. For example, Eamon Ryan from Ireland uh, was involved in some of the negotiating, right? And I'll explain Eamon's role later, right? Um, But um, uh, the truth be told, the Commission and the Council were at the negotiating table for the European Union. And the European Parliament weren't there. Mm. So we're bystanders. We meet them every day and we ask them questions if we like or we just listen to them anyway, right? Uh, So you get a a general flavour of where they're coming from. 
and what their position is a bit from listening to them, right? I'm sure they don't tell you everything, but uh, at least we listen to them, right? Uh, so that's one thing. So, I mean, that obviously, uh, it once again emphasises the democratic deficit um, in the European Union. So, there, so, as you know, with three chambers in the European Union, we, we, well, we, we have the Commission, we have the Council and we have the Parliament. The Parliament are the only ones that are elected. They can't legislate uh, in Brussels and they don't get to the negotiating table at a COP. Mm. So the, the unelected uh, Commission and the Council are the ones... Uh, who are um, negotiating on the part of the European Union. Sorry, what were you going to ask me? Well, what I was going to say was that are they the best in class that they tell us that they are? We're always told here that European Union is the world leader in climate action in terms of your, um, I suppose, knowledge and, and listening out there. Is that true? Are they ahead of the posse? Are they lagging behind? What countries impressed you? What countries disappointed you? Were there any standout moments? But firstly, like, is the European Union the best in class that they tell us they are? Okay, um, to answer that, I'm sorry, but they're not. Um, I was very disappointed with the European Union, to be honest. Mm. Um, all hopes this time were hooked on finally establishing a financing facility of, of sorts for loss and damage to compensate the poorest and the most affected countries for the climate impacts that they suffer. And it, 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 it's, it's the EU and its rich allies um, that stymied progress on that. Mm. And I'm not saying that the EU are the biggest culprit, because they're not. And the EU tr is, was trying to present itself as a bridge builder between the countries who don't want to pay loss and damage. Now, yes, what's the loss and damage? Well, look at loss and damage was established back in 1994 by the UN climate body. And what they said was that some countries, the global north, is historically responsible for most of the emissions that are responsible for the impact of climate change on other countries, especially those least responsible for the emissions. And what they decided was that the wealthy, industrialised, developed countries would pay loss and damage for the, the impact that they've had while they were making uh, trillions of money over the, since the Industrial Revolution started, uh, that they would have to compensate the ones that were now suffering and didn't have the money to actually uh, replace the loss and damage that they were suffering from the impact of climate change. That's as simple as that. Now, where was the EU on that? The, e the Parliament had a vote on that here not so long ago. And we voted in favour of bringing in a financial facility for loss and damage. Now, obviously, we didn't do the work out the goods uh, and bones of it. Uh, that that has to be done at a top level uh, with the UN as as the leading uh, force on it, right? Um, but the Parliament may have voted for it, but there's too much politics at play. There's geopolitics nonstop, and now. Listening to the Commission and the Council, um, I mean, just to give you an idea where they were coming from, it, it became obvious 
By the time I came out of I was in there early on Tuesday morning, and by the time I came out of the place on Tuesday evening, I went there in the hope that, you know what, this was the time that loss and damage would eventually uh, get the oxygen that it needs and progress. Uh, as the two of us were in Pakistan only three weeks ago, and we seen the damage that's been done in Pakistan, and they have a prayer of paying for the loss and damage that they didn't cause because they are not responsible f- for the climate change. They, Pakistan is actually responsible for 0.08% of emissions in the world. It has the fifth largest population with 220 million. Less than, it's responsible for less than 1% of the emissions, but it is suffering untoldly. It is unbelievable. 33 million are impacted by the floods in Pakistan. 33 million people. You could pick six countries in Europe together and they wouldn't make 33 million. Uh, so what was agreed in terms of loss and damage? It's not agreed. It's not finished. Okay. It and won't finish until tomorrow. And But just to, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm all over the shop. I'm right, right? Um, but... Just to give you an idea of a flavour of what was coming from our buys, the Council and the Commission from the European Union, they said creating funds doesn't necessarily bring extra money. Well, OK, that's not rocket science, but if you put the money into them, it will, <laughs> right? They said uh, maybe it's too, too soon for loss and damage and we need a more of a mosaic approach, a bit of this and a bit of that. God help mm. me and God help the countries that are suffering so much. The G77. The G77 are made up of 134 different countries, including China. And I got the impression that the European Union is actually frustrated by the fact that that G77 are sticking together. And that they, they, their argument that, well, not all size fits all, not one size fits all, and that we have to look at them differently, this, that, and that, right? But, and, and a bit of a, an approach of, I, uh, it wasn't said uh, loudly, but I felt that there was an approach of, let's divide them and rule them. Mm. A bit of that, right, going on, right? And, and I did hear the expression, we need to decouple the G77. And I've also heard, it was also said, we don't need to establish a fund now because it mightn't be the right fund. Now, this is 30 years mm. after they agreed first that there would be a fund. 30 years? 1992, this was agreed, right? Now, and 13 years ago, they all agreed that they put in 100 billion a year, which they still haven't started doing. Now, where's all this going, right? Now, China's at the core, at the heart of all this, right? And the Americans don't want to concede any kind of a financial advantage to China because they're in competition with them morning, noon and night. And they think that, oh, China must pay for loss and damage too. But Jason Hickel has actually a brilliant article. People should look it up. Jason Hickel is, is just a genius on all this stuff, right? He wrote an article only there recently. The last, I, I, I actually saw it. He, he tweeted it there early in the week. And he, he, has a, he has a diagram which shows that in 2015, when they measured it properly last, right? In 2015, the global north, which is Europe, uh, the US and Canada, are responsible for 92% of all global emissions up to 2015 since the start of the Industrial Revolution. 
92%, and now they want the, the Chinese uh, to be paid for it. And the Chinese don't want any of the loss and damage mo money. The Chinese is a very strong economy in itself, but it's still developing as far as they're concerned. And their average wage, I think, is about a sixth of, of the American wage still, right? Um, but obviously, uh, China is going to be uh, probably the number one powerhouse in the world, financial powerhouse in the world someday, but God knows when, right? But it will, it will get there. Um, but so the idea that, oh, we're not, we're not, no loss and damage unless China want to pay, that is totally disingenuous because what was agreed in 92 and never went off the Richter scale never went off the charts, that is incorporated in, in the Paris Treaty in 2015. The Paris Treaty is vital. Everything is hinging around the Paris Treaty these days. And all the commitments and the targets we're making are all linked around the Paris Treaty, right? And that agreement on loss and damage by, by the historically responsible countries is still is in the Paris Agreement. But, I mean, if I heard it once, I heard it 20 times. And I heard it from some of our own MEPs, which is very disappointing, from the Parliament, saying, oh, the China wants to live uh, back in the 1992. We don't live in the 1992 anymore. Well, that's like saying the UN Charter, which was established just after the Second World War. Oh, it's, 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 that's, that's from the 40s. We don't use that anymore. Mm. Because that's what they're doing. And what the Chinese... And listen, I was very fortunate. Uh, I actually got to meet... Uh, the, the Vice Minister for Environment, and he was, the, he was the, I think he was head of the delegation for China. I got a one-on-one -on -one with him, myself and Damien. It was amazing. It was outstanding. And uh, we got that uh, in the morning yesterday. And the, the group met him in the evening, so I was at that as well, uh, where he was also at that, plus uh, the special envoy was at it, right? And, I mean, it do you good to listen to the Chinese. They talk so straight, there's no aggression. They're so intelligent. They're so professional. It would do you good to listen to them. No doubt somebody would accuse you of being knobbled well, now. Yeah, well, <laughs> listen, I mean, um, they will accuse me of that. But, I mean, listen, uh, I call a spade a spade, right? And the Chinese want multilateralism. They want to work with everybody. And they're saying, oh, they're, they're being accused by the Europeans that oh China you you um, uh, you you work with developing countries and you do business with them and you you know you take minerals from them and you do other things with them and you invest in them but you don't want to pay for loss and damage, and the Chinese went to great pains to explain to us that they're actually investing dramatically in uh, in renewables, in underdeveloped countries, and it's called a South South relationship, mm. right, and. Um, but the Chinese, they don't want any of the loss and damage money, but they want the rules and regulations that were established to be adhered to. The rules says we didn't invent them, the Chinese said. We didn't make the rules. We didn't make these regulations. We just want the others to follow them and not to be moving the goalposts now. Well, I think you do paint a frightened picture in some ways of how the European Union and undoubtedly the US are concentrating their geopolitical opposition to China as an economic rival in order to subsume uh, a lot of a higher goal in terms of tackling climate change and other issues, which is really regrettable. And actually, it reminds me of a meeting we had yesterday of the Foreign Interference Committee where they were looking at China's role in Africa. And the meeting was held in camera, which means that 
it wasn't shown to the public, even though we've said our proceedings will be transparent. And we were wondering, why is this not being held in public? And actually, I think it was because of what the speaker said, because actually all of the evidence that they gave was that China's role in Africa wasn't about trying to put in regime change, not trying to employ, um, you know, uh, puppet regimes to themselves, that they were working uh, in peacekeeping missions there and they were promoting their own economic interests, which often had a beneficial impact on the countries in Africa as well. And the way it came across really was that Europe was just sour grapes, that they weren't at the races at all. And it would seem from based on what you're saying um, that their sort of opposition or the economic threat of, of China is being used to muddy the water in terms of climate change as well, which is just absolutely Absolutely, right? Mm. And um, we're failing to do the right thing uh, because of geopolitics, in my opinion. Mm. Now, I genuinely think that the European Union wants to get to the right space and wants to do the right thing. Uh, and I... And look, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be criticising them so much because I think they're a lot, lot, an awful lot better uh, than the likes of the Americans mm. uh, or the Canadians for that matter. Um, I, I think Europe wants to do the right thing, but Europe, a bit like the fact that they're supporting a stupid war, a US proxy war in Ukraine uh, that's NATO driven, they're supporting that despite the fact that it's not in the best interest of the people of Europe. And sadly, I find them failing to go to the space where we just, we just have to grab the bull by the horns and we have to move this uh, loss and damage facility much quicker. <laughs> and, 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 and I think they want to do it, uh, but I think that they're too much, uh, too, just, just too much under the thumb of the Americans of late. Mm. Which is really regrettable. And I mean, I saw some sort of mad stuff that came out like about, for example, the whole situation in South Africa, which kind of shows a lot of the hypocrisy as well that the European Union is involved in pushing South Africa to, you know, wind down its coal production. But at the same time, Germany has become their biggest customer and is now the uh, the amount of sales of coal imports from South Africa have increased eightfold in the first half of this year. Um, German electricity suppliers are the top purchasers of South African coal. Yet at the same time, they're saying giving loans to South Africa to wean themselves off coal while they're buying all the coal and they're privatising it as well. I mean, this is just total double and, standards. And as the Chinese pointed out yesterday, uh, the Germans have started taking coal out of the ground themselves in mm. Germany mm. Uh, to deal with the fact that they're not getting uh, the Russian gas anymore. Exactly. And mm. uh, people might be... Uh, might find it frightening to hear that there's German companies right now relocating to China and other countries. Do you know what they're doing? They're chasing the Russian gas. Mm. They're chasing access to Russian gas mm. uh, to make their production. Right? Jobs will be lost across Europe with the approach that we're taking. Mm. Um, but uh, Japan, the US and Canada there were, there were none of the leading fellas in. Uh, I actually thought that we met more um, uh, stronger decision fellas higher up the pecking order uh, in Madrid two years ago. Um, but anyway, but we did meet people, and it's good to meet them, and it's good to hear their perspective, right? But we met the Americans and the Canadians and Japan, and I picked 
and I put the three of them together because the three of them were singing the same hymn off the same hymn sheet, right? Mm. Ah, but China, ah, but China. And now people should remember, right? China today is responsible for 30% of the world's emissions, mm. right? So that's the figure that people is staring people in the face, and that's a, sh a crazy figure, right? Mm. But they have a fifth, nearly a fifth of the world's people. Mm. And remember that per head of, per capita, per head, they're one third of the emissions of an American citizen mm. still, right? Mm. Despite the fact that they're making everything, they're making 90% of everything for the world. Mm. And just for example, right, over 90% of the solar panels, now no, no country in the world matches China for wind or for solar in terms of what they put into place. No one comes even remotely close to them when it comes to manufacturing it for everyone else. China are making over 90% of the solar panels for the planet. <coughs> over 90% for the whole planet. And that causes emissions, right? So that's part of their emissions, that they're making stuff for us that we're using to try and reduce our carbon footprint and our emissions, mm. right? I mean, you need to put things in perspective. And the Chinese, if they're creating emissions now, if they're, if they're, if they're, if they're responsible for 30% of the emissions today, then... That th there has to be a system where, I mean, there is uh, things in place where they have to pay for it, mm. right? You have to pay for uh, any pollution that you cause, mm. right? But that's separate from the loss and damage, which has to be paid for by the historical uh, countries responsible for 92% of global emissions. But I, I, I picked out those three countries because I found it. I said to myself, there's too much geopolitics here this week. It's all about the money. There's just too yeah. much geopolitics. Now, listen, uh, well, let me move away from that from a little bit, right? And let's go to some of the smaller people, right? Um, Zimbabwe came in, uh, Marshall Islands, um, the Maldives were in, there was an indigenous people from Peru, um, Pakistan were in, and Bangladesh were in. Now, I mean, listen, Pakistan, the, the Minister for Environment for Pakistan, oh my God, how good is she? Her name is Sherry Rayman, Rayman, Rayman. Hmm. And oh, she's, she's an absolute star. Oh, she doesn't mess around. She just calls it as it is. And uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, it was, I won't go through everything that she, I can't go through everything she said, right? But she said, with Pakistan, Pakistan, she says, the World Bank says there's 30 billion euros worth of damage been done by the recent floods. Well, she said, we're looking at, by 2030, we need a minimum of 348 billion to survive, right, by 2030. Right, and this is not. They don't need loans. They already have an IMF loan, and they're they're negotiating another IMF loan at the moment in order to be able to pay the first IMF loan because they're falling behind on their payments if they don't get another one. Right, it's called a debt trap. Right, and the conditions are going to get worse on the loans. When when the IMF or the World Bank give you money, they increase conditions, like, for example, they did in uh, in, in Tunisia there recently, where this, they gave them a loan to pay for a previous loan, as well, like, very like what, what's, what's going to happen in Pakistan. But they made them stop subsidising food, they made them stop subsidising fuel and heating for the citizens. Now, where would you be going in a society that's already in trouble? But Pakistan, just... Uh, she was 
she was so blunt. I just love it, right? And, she, and one of the things she said, what goes on in Pakistan won't stay in Pakistan. What's happening to us is it, it isn't, doesn't stop at our borders, right? Climate change is everywhere. It doesn't recognise any boundaries, any religion, any colour, any politicians, any parties, right? It's Climate change is a problem for us all, right? Another thing she said, hope, she said, is not a plan. Now think about it. That's a brilliant line. Hope is not a plan, right? Now, she was looking at it, she said, right, loss and damage, she said, the Western countries, the developed countries, she said, they say they don't have the money to pay for the loss and damage. That's what they say, she says, they don't have the money. Now, she didn't go into it, right, but just to point out, the amount of money that we're spending on the military today of the Western countries, and the amount, the amount that's going to increase now because of the Ukraine war is off the Richter scale. So we have, we're able to find endless money for military, but we cannot find money for the loss and damage. And when the Americans, uh, with COVID, right, shares in big industry in America were going through the floor, but they were rescued by the American government, by the Federal Exchange, right? 8.5 trillion they gave to Wall Street to prop up the shares of the top 1% people. 8.5 trillion went to the top 1% of shareholders in America as a, a, a response to COVID. My God. And the Pakistan minister, she said, look what she said. Uh, I can't say that they have the money or they don't. They say they don't have it. Well, if they don't, she said, we have a big problem, she said. And she says, you know what we have to do, she says? We have to rewire the system. We have to rewire Bretton Woods which was established in '44, and it, it, our whole financial system kind of works around it at the moment. And it's not fit for purpose anymore. And it's at the core of capitalism. And we're not going to fix the climate crisis anyway with capitalism. Capitalism is no longer fit for purpose either. And it is incompatible with dealing with climate change. Mm. But the... The guy, the minister from Bangladesh, oh, lovely fella, an absolute gem as well. And very much the same story as Pakistan. Uh, it, it was just, uh, it's so good to listen to him. And they're, they're just, they're, I mean, they're, they're saying it, and, and uh, the, the, the Africans as well, and the Marshall Islands, and I mean, they're just saying, look at, why is there talking here? We have a crisis. He says, the island, the fellow from Marshall Island says, the island I was born on, he says, is underwater. It's gone, he says, it's gone. And he says, we were there thousands of years, he says, our families. Thousands of years, it's underwater. And he says, there's a couple of more islands underwater. We're all going to be underwater, he says, if, if we don't do something about it. And we're not doing enough about mm. it. I suppose these events really do show up the two-tier nature of the world that we live in. And actually, the Guatemalans who were over here talked very much as well about preserving Mother Earth and the old methods of, you know, saving the land, which have been um, delegitimized so much by transnational corporations and so on coming in, pilfering uh, the earth. And I suppose these are the countries that are really experiencing climate change and well right they are to call it out when we remember that 300 million a day was spent on the war in Afghanistan for 20 years so there's no problem finding that money they could certainly find it for climate change so all in all I mean I think it probably was worth your while going even though the outcome is limited the lesson would seem to be that those countries that form the majority of the world's population 
but don't control the power of the global north are the ones who need to start asserting their authority if there's to be any hope for humanity, really. Yeah, um, I think that um, it's about time now we woke up. And there's so much pushback by people who think they're going to lose money because of measures being brought in to restore nature and to stop the planet burning. Look, and I mean, I think you've given a very good insight into what happened. It's not the most pleasant of stories to have to tell. Uh, the planet is in trouble. Um, but we have to take hope, not as a plan, fair enough, but certainly from the organising and the militancy of the, the global south. And let's hope they... Um, assert themselves but I think we'd be remiss of not finishing the programme without mentioning the poison chalice that they took for themselves with their hybrid war as Micheál Martin called it their um, being caught out for their massive Russia phobia and the sanctioning of 52 members of the Irish government by the Russian authorities for their utter craven uh, Russia phobia and stirring things up uh, there which um, they seem to be Glad of that badge of honour, but they shouldn't. These people are jeopardising our neutrality. They have behaved utterly shamefully in a zealous, um, warmongering way, which is beyond many of the countries of Europe, way beyond the wishes of European citizens. And they actually should be ashamed of themselves for um, the conduct that got them into this situation, which is just a quid pro quo of the Russians responding um, to what the Irish authorities have done. So uh, it's very, very regrettable and that this is something that they did themselves by shamefully abandoning our neutrality, a neutrality which they marketed to get a seat on the UN Security Council and then shamefully um, ignored their position in our trying to argue for peace and a resolution on that body. Um, someone sent me a, a recording of an interview uh, this morning from RTE. And it was with a fellow called Michael Murphy, a retired lieutenant colonel and a former deputy director of military intelligence in the Defence Forces. It's about five minutes long. I would recommend uh, six minutes. Right? I recommend everyone listen to it. He talked so much sense about the Ireland's approach to the war mm -hmm. and our approach as well to uh, dealing with the Russians in Ireland as well. And, well, and uh, it, uh, it's, it is a real good listen. It was just, it just talked common sense. It made, it was just so good to listen to it. And, and one of the things he pointed out, he says, he says, for Ireland, he said, to take the position of the Baltic states in Poland, more so than the, even the position of the likes of France and Germany, of the, of the West European countries, he said, it reminds me, he says, of a young fella, he says, uh, going to the secondary school for the first day and picking a fight with the toughest fella in the sixth class. Mm -hmm. He says, that's what it reminds me of, he said. He says, it's nonsense, he said, our approach. Mm. And it's it's a shame this will be Michal Martin's legacy and it's an insult to De Valera and many of the people who went before. They want to be the best little Europeans in class. It's a place we shouldn't be going to, so... On that note, let us adjourn. And uh, just one last point. Um, Simon Coveney was on the radio this morning and he talked about sown, Russia's sown divisions. <laughs> well, I would remind Simon that the Irish government are sown huge divisions in Irish society today.
Most Irish people prefer peace to war and we have an Irish government that's promoting war and has shown no appetite for uh, even exploring peace options. Mm. It is really so disappointing. And has ignored the fact that this war has been going on for eight years in parts of uh, the Donbass and so on. There's a history behind it and that that division has been stirred and created now for many years. So shame on Ireland. They deserve uh, their sanction, but these people are really an embarrassment and a disgrace. And and I don't remember uh, condemning the illegal US NATO invasions in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, their involvement in Syria, their destruction of Libya. The Irish government were on the side of US imperialism all those days. So on that note, we adjourn and we'll see you all next week in Strasbourg. Arrivederci. Good luck.